Hello everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord, the comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport, the best online and unusual source for comic books news, reviews and previews. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. For example, Logan Ludwig's book Moving Panels, Translating Comics to Film has just been published. Yes, and also if we're mentioning Seaport, not through the actual publisher, but one of their contributors. That would be me. <laughs> yes, one Sean Adry has a book out. Yes, it's called Visits to Azing Glen. It's a collection of short stories currently available on Amazon. Uh, self-published, so be gentle with re- your reviews. Uh, and since we mentioned Sean Edry, you should probably mention that I am Tom Shapiro. And I am Sean Edry, yes. your personal healthcare companion. <laughs> fa la 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 la. And we should also mention, if we're mentioning Seekward, that they have a Patreon. Yes, support smart criticism in comics. We do the heavy thinking so you don't have to. Okay, we're going to start right with the news because there's uh, plenty to talk about. Wow, so it has been a, a busy couple of days. Yeah. Um, I want to start with the first promotional image of Jason Momoa as Aquaman came out. I don't think there was much surprise. Uh, very washed out, black, gray, and white. White streaks in his hair. He looks like Mickey Rourke. Um, no, he looks like Jason Momoa. He looks like Jason Momoa. Always looks. He looks, exactly he, he looks like the way he looked in Game of Thrones, the way he looked as Conan. Exactly. Which I guess that's what they were looking for. If Jason Momoa was ever hired to play like a flight attendant, it would be the wow. scariest, most barbarian flight attendant ever. No one would dare get out of their seat. Like, yeah. the passes by like, But, so, okay. So you didn't see this fan film that's been making the rounds lately. Uh, Joseph Kahn did this sort of dark gritty uh, interpretation of Power Rangers. Because somebody had to? Well, here, so here's the thing. This is, like, the reason that I'm bringing it up in relation to Aquaman. <laughs> so he basically took, Joseph Kahn uh, took James Vanderbeek and Katie Sackhoff, and they did this really dark take on a 20-year-old kid's show. And it was interesting to watch because there's always something potentially interesting about the idea of taking something that's supposedly for kids and making it like a grown-up version, and seeing what what can come out of that. And, you know, the, the fan film wasn't so bad, but I can see the logic of saying that Aquaman would need that treatment, because of the super friends, because of the jokes that have been running for decades, despite DC making so much effort to push back against that, he's still considered something of a joke. And if this were an isolated case, I might be more supportive of the direction that they're taking Momoa in, like, as Aquaman. But this is really just more of the same. Like, when you look at this image, does it look any different from anything else we've seen in sort of the Snyderverse of of the DC heroes? Does it look that different from uh, Henry Cavill as Superman standing in the rain moping, like, all the blue and red sort of washed out and dark? It just looks so... Like, at this point, the, the innovative thing would actually be to, you know, bleach his hair blonde and have him, like, wear the, the fishmail shirt, the way that he did it. That would actually be different from what we're already getting. Look, it's the, the best, what's the best version of Aquaman? That depends on be, who you ask. No, no, I mean, it doesn't, because there's a clear and, and, and simple answer. The best is the Batman Brave and the Bold version, which was the over-exaggerated, let's go on an adventure, you know, uh, orange shirt wearing, old chum thing guy, yeah. the fun guy, and every other version 
feels by now almost defensive, you know, because the Jeff right. Jones, the Jeff Jones relaunch. Oh God. Was yeah. crazily defensive. It was just Aquaman st- standing up and saying to you know bloggers who were in the crowd standing, "I'm a ser- I'm a serious superhero." Yeah. Well, Johns was really like the the end of this long running process where they've tried to have people take Aquaman seriously. That where he loses his hand and his that's son the Peter dies. David that's thing. Peter David, yeah. The barbarian, the barbarian king. Sure. And there's a place for it's such fine. an interpretation. It's just that. With Aquaman, it almost always feels like a blowback at the audience. Like, well, you have to take him seriously. And no, I don't have to. I can take him lightly and enjoy it. It's, I think the, the issue is more that you can take him seriously in the Barbarian King mode when you have the flash-cracking jokes next to him or when you have Kyle Rayner or where you have these characters who are more lighthearted and there's a contrast. Here, it's like they went with Jason Momoa and they have Ben Affleck and they have Gal Gadot and they have... Henry Cavill, and I am not sure that any of these actors, between them, have the ability to crack a smile. Well, I'm Ezra, not sure. Ezra Miller is supposed to be there, right? Isn't oh, he great, fish? because Ezra Miller always, you know, has this sort of smiling and happy-go-lucky, <laughs> this is the kid from We Need to Talk About Kevin, which I know always makes me laugh. So, I mean, <laughs> really, like, nobody, this is like... when they The Dower the oh, League of America. Wow. I'm thinking about it now, like, Christian Bale doesn't smile, right? This is something that is known about him. That's why he was so Serial perfect. killer smile. Yeah. Well, this is why he was perfect for equilibrium, right? Show us no emotions. Huh? Yes, exactly. Keep it like that, Christian. So, and now, like, they have cast all of these actors, and they're so freaking serious that really... And, I mean, we're talking about an Aquaman film. You would think that, at the very least, they would try some kind of contrast, like... A little bit of variety. This is exactly the sort of homogenous sludge that the, the new 52 has become, right? Nobody can crack a joke in this, in this entire universe. So, screw it, you know, I mean, why do we have to put up with that? Also, the Unite the Seven tagline, is that supposed to be the seven <laughs> members of the Justice League or, or the, the seven, seven kingdoms seas? of Westeros? No, the seven seas, I, I don't know. I think it's very, very clearly meant to be a shout out to Game of Thrones where you have like the seven kingdoms and the seven gods and he was Khal Drogo and... It, I it smell is, a crossover! It's, it's pretty transparently. I mean, the only reason they could have had to cast him because he tanked the Conan reboot. So well, really the only everything reason... tanked the Conan reboot. It's not his fault only. It's largely his fault. He, he's, I mean, he's very monotonous as an actor. So I think it's pretty clear that they cast him because of his popularity on Game of Thrones. And they, they want to get the Game of Thrones fandom into Which it, is so. odd because it, wasn't he off the show after the first season, his character? Yeah, but he so left an impression. Because what, what, has he, what has he been doing since Conan? I don't know. I honestly have no idea. Preparing for this, I guess. I mean, that would be the only logical... Um, okay. Anyway. Uh, TV news? TV news. So, Mike Carey's Lucifer has received the pilot order, produced by Jerry Bruckheimer and Len Wiseman for Our Sins. Uh, it's been described as a police procedural starring Satan. He fights crime! He fights crime, which is everything they, that... They actually use the line, he fights crime! Satan fights crime. That's everything except what the book actually was. And you know what it is? You know what it is? There was a generation of Vertigo readers, myself included, who, yes, read Lucifer and said, damn, I wish this would be a good show. 
like a TV show. It would have been awesome. But now we're getting like, you know, Constantine and this and, and Gotham and it's just, why, why is Satan fighting crime? Why, why? That sort of misses the whole point of, you know, well, Mike, Carey, right? Mike Carey's Lucifer. Uh, oh God, can you imagine like what Mike Carey must have thought when he heard that? I'm going to get a lot of money? Well, I don't know his contracts. Hopefully, hopefully he thought, I'm okay. going to get a lot of money. Well, but then you get into, like, how do you trademark Lucifer? <laughs> like, yes, yeah, Satan. I should get royalties for that. Um, Satan TM. Wow. That sounds like a Grant Morrison comic, though. Satan TM. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a Joe, no, a Joe Casey comic. Co- corporate copyrights of, of satanic entities. Um... Well, I'm not watching this, so that's for sure. Like, no, the, the police procedural format has been applied to so many concepts where it does not belong, and this is one of them. So, no, thank you. <laughs> the other TV lunch. Yeah. So that's I, a weird one. It's a weird one, and I'm not entirely sure how to feel about it. And we it. don't know yet if someone will fight crime. Well, okay, so basically what happened was that Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue DeConnick have signed to deal with Universal TV to bring some of their comics to uh, television. The first one that was announced was Sex Criminals. Now, we here at the Smorgasbord love Sex Criminals. Yeah. But it is very much a show that is... It's not... It's a book that is extremely explicit. And I'm not entirely sure what network has the cojones to actually. Well, do it's not going to be that network. It's going to be cable because in modern day cable standards, you know, sex criminals is tame. I think there's no. more nudity. No, it is not. I think there's more nudity in every single episode of Game of Thrones than there is at the, you know. Nudity, yes, but the mm. whole point of uh, sex criminals is what? What was the show? Sex masters, masters of masters sex? of sex. What is? Which I did not watch because it looked so boring. So I, I don't, I don't know. And it's not even the most explicit image book right now, isn't it? No, you have sex. Joe but Casey's Joe Casey's sex. sex, but Joe Casey's sex is sort of this weird superhero thing, isn't it? Yes, with sex, with with everything replaced, with every single trapping of superhero life replaced by. Sex. Uh, I, I really like sex, but it's a very... <laughs> <laughs> Every yeah. single time that phrase comes up, I can't help well, it. Well, you know... And Joe Casey did, did it on purpose. purpose. Yes. God, <laughs> God bless your heart, Joe Casey. Because Joe Casey right now is so rich from his men of action, you know, studios yes. that he can uh, allow himself to do whatever. Yeah, I'm going to call a book sex. Sure. Sure. And Image will publish it, because why wouldn't they? Um, so let's talk about something that actually is a good fit for once. Matt Wagner has been approached to write Will Eisner's The Spirit as a new ongoing at Dynamite. Okay, um... There's a, that's a good fit. It's a better fit than Frank Miller, which isn't saying much, I realize. But, but it's less of a good fit than Darwin Cook. And anyway, The Spirit, you know, writing The Spirit, whenever someone else does The Spirit other than Eisner, you get the need to tell them, you know, The Spirit as a character... It's pointless. Nobody. Well, let's talk a little bit no, about like, what the spirit. No, is. because nobody, nobody really cares. I think about the spirit as a character. Almost nobody. People care about him as a tool for Eisner to showcase his technical brilliance, which was what he was at the time, yeah. the avant-garde adventure pop. Right. Like as a character concept, I don't think there's anything. He's intentionally generic. Yeah. He was intentionally a blank slate. You know, it's a guy in a fedora and a domino mask. 
Um, Wagner's a good... Uh, well, first of all, at least it's not another damn Hunter Rose story from Matt Wagner. Thank God he's doing something else for once. Because I am tired as hell of, of Grendel Hunter Rose. This is a situation in which a character has written, like, you know, so many characters. You assume there won't be a oh. crossover between uh, Grendel and the Spirit, which I think, don't do if you, don't, don't if you do know that. Matt Wagner, you know that's, that's coming. Oh, God. That's no. coming. No. Yes. No. No. <laughs> why, why, why are you putting that out into the universe? Now it's going to happen, and I'm going to be like, God damn it. But, uh, I mean, he has the skills, like, as a writer... He has the capability to do the spirit justice, and I think maybe in a more interesting way than he's been previously, because I know that other writers have been doing the spirit. I just don't remember any of them. Well, Brian Azzarello did it for DC when they Which, had the pulp line. No, it didn't work. No. Uh, Darwin Cook had... 12-issue run on it, which was... Darwin Cook is a great in my opinion, artistically. I think, in my opinion, it was a great series. I a really writer, too? Yes, I really liked what okay. he did there. It was a series of mostly one-shots with a small bit of through-line running through them, and when he finished, he finished. You actually felt satisfaction. For mm -hmm. And after that, I think it was Mark Evania, which was okay. Mm. It was okay, but what's the point? What, what can you achieve with it? Yeah. What can you achieve with Exus the Spirit, whoever X is, that you can achieve with Excess generic crime fighter, other than brand recognition. And really, that's sort of the the uncomfortable part, is that the spirit is so strongly identified with Will Eisner, in spite of everyone who tries to fill those shoes afterwards, that really, why bother? I mean, it does seem like a very strange property to still be... It feels like it's on some level they're publishing it just so that it will be in publication. And, well, I get it because, you know, a lot of those writers are obviously fans. You know, Darwin Cook doesn't do... Yes. Well, almost anything. I was about to say anything, but he did before Watchmen. Darwin Cook is right now... <laughs> right now, Darwin Cook does pretty much whatever he wants, you know... For his own personal reasons, he doesn't do stuff for money. I think, I think after Before Watchmen, he doesn't have to because yeah. they apparently paid him through the roof. That so, some good came out so you know, he does his Parker books. He does his uh, what was it? I don't even remember. He's probably still getting royalties every time they put out the New Frontier. Yeah, and they keep putting it out in like eight hundred yeah. different formats. He's getting paid. Better. Yeah, so you know, he did the spirit because he wanted to. And when Wagner said, "I want to do the spirit," I believe him. The question yeah. is. Should he do the spirit? I think so. Well, if you're going to have a, a spirit ongoing, you might as well have Matt Wagner on it. Because, why not? He could do justice to it. I'm not the biggest Wagner fan, I think. Well, neither am I, but only because he's stuck in a rut. Like, as a writer, he's, he's a good writer. He just has a tendency to fixate on a certain idea and ride it all the way to oblivion and back. <laughs> at which point you no longer care. Okay, uh, shall we mention the new ongoing Invader Zim? Wow, listen. I Th that's going to talk for a certain generation of people. Okay, so Invader Zim was this cult animated series that did not last very long. Two, three seasons? No, I think it was only two. Two seasons, yeah. Uh, it was about... An alien invader <laughs> called it yeah, makes me laugh. an alien invader called Zim from a race of you know galactic conquerors mm -hmm. who's assigned to conquer Earth mostly because his bosses want him out of the way and that was the most desolate planet they could think of. Exactly. And his constant foil is a very nerdy sci science kid called Dib, mm -hmm. 
and they both have this ongoing feud slash war in which nobody else is interested in because Dave is constantly yelling, this guy's an alien, and he does a very bad job of hiding it, and but nobody pays five. attention. Lies! And everybody and nobody noticed because this is a John it's a John Vescat project so it's a John Vescat version of Earth in which everybody outside the main character is a complete and utter douche, <laughs> a complete and utter asshole. Oh, so it it was hugely popular with you know a certain generation when it came out in two thousand one two thousand two I mm-hmm. think you know blew people's mind. It was on Nickelodeon, right? Yeah, but. It was a very expensive show to make, apparently, and the bit and the fan base, though very vocal, wasn't as huge as they would want it. So right. the show it was, was the kept... definition of a cult hit in the yeah. sense that the people who enjoyed it were loyal to it all the way to the end. It didn't help that it took them, it took Nickelodeon a very long time to put out the DVDs or or collected editions, which is a problem that they still have these days. So. so... After more than a decade, it's coming back because John Vizquez needs money. Well, here's the problem. I say problem, it's sort of a question mark. The press release that Oni put out to announce It's on Oni Press, by the way. Right, <laughs> yeah. uh, Oni Press. And here's the problem. They, it was very specifically worded that the series is being produced in collaboration with, with John, John Vizquez. Now, they did not say that he'd be writing it. Well, did he write most of the show? He I, was the creator of the concept. I think so. I don't know if he wrote all of the episodes. It, ma- it made me, like, it, it brought to mind, you know, bringing the boondocks back without Aaron Magruder. It's like, I don't know if not having the input of that. Because Vasquez's, whether or not he wrote every episode... The world of Invader Zim is very, very much something that he, yeah. you know, it, 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 it's... I think that might be the reason that it's a cult success, because if you don't get the way that Vasquez thinks, the show doesn't really click for you. But, and, and a comic, and like, I, I, to be completely honest with you, I don't know if it'll work without Richard Horvitz's voice as Zim. Yeah, it's... Because Zim is just... Or whoever did <laughs> Gur. Gur. Um, I, okay, I'll give it a try, because I did, I was one of the people who very much enjoyed Invader Zim. Not sure. We'll have to wait for more details because who's writing, who's drawing? It's like, it belongs to a certain generation of, I'm trying to imagine similar, uh, series, something like Red and Stimpy Stimpy and Comics. There was a Red and Stimpy comic, it was the first work by one Dan Slott. Which really, that's where, you know, it, it, it figures that all our troubles began with Red and Stimpy. I like Dan Slott, what? Not, not getting to that. But anyway, so, but I mean, there was a Ren and Stimpy comic, but it wasn't quite as well, successful in communicating what the anime Well, because, yeah, was. because Ren and Stimpy was a very, it was a cartoonish cartoon. It was like... So it was Zim. And Zim, less so, because, you know, in Zim, most of the comedy came from the characters and the gags, not from extreme animation adaptability or something like that. Um. It's That's not Bugs. True. It's not Bugs Bunny. You can't. No, it's not. You know, because the, the idea with classic cartoons, or even with something like Ren and Stimpy, is you can silence it down, and you would still get most of the gags because it's all physical and it's all about the action. Zim right. wasn't like that. Zim was very character based. A lot of the humor came from the setting and the character, mm. which you can reproduce in comic. Depends who's the writer. Now it's also it's coming right after the announcement of the Rick and Morty adaptation, also yes. from Ani. So. They're doing. They're trying to take a bite out of the market now owned by 
Boom and IDW. I get, well, the I guess TV. IDW, now that they're busy with uh, Top Shelf, yeah. Oni's like, hmm, let's get all these licenses. So what's next? What's next? I would like a Daria comic. And I ah, Real Daria. Monsters comics? Sure. Sure. You know, I mean, there's so much... What I've never understood, there there is this very strong wave of nostalgia right now for properties from the late 80s, early 90s. We talked about Gem and the Holograms. Yeah. We talked about like Escape from New York and all of these comebacks. But I do feel that a lot of these sort of returns and, and attempts to mind nostalgia are very specifically focused on quote-unquote mainstream material. Something like Invader Zim or... or um, what was the name of that show? That was <laughs> um, that show. Downtown. Oh, oh, the the guy who did uh, Megas XLR. Yeah, or, or Megas, Megas XLR. XLR. Like, like these were series that ran, and they were very fringe. Or Exo Squad, if you remember from the nineties. That's fringe. Woo! So it feels strange that that's not where they're going because these. I mean, when you move from television to comics. Your fan base is smaller anyway. But I do feel like if there were 30,000 people who are diehard Invaders Dim loyalists, 30,000 comics sold would be pretty good. For someone like Oni, yeah. Yeah, you know, so it feels like they should be aiming more for the sort of weird material that Nickelodeon and MTV were producing back in the early 90s. Well, we'll see. Anything else on the news? Well, the Dwayne McDuffie Award for oh, Diversity right. announced the nominees. The first Dwayne McDuffie Award, right? The first. Yeah. And I think, uh, first of all, you know, congratulations on the concept. I'm all for it. So the nominees are Hex 11 by Lisa K. Weber and Kelly Sue Milano, MFK by Nyla Magruder, Ms. Marvel by G. Willow Wilson and Adrian Nofana, The Shadow Hero by Jean Luen Yang and Sonny Liu, and Shaft by David F. Walker and Biltis Evely. I read Shaft. I've read the first issue. I really liked it. I'll admit that I don't recognize most of these. Yeah. I know MFK is a webcomic. It's on my to-do list. And I know Gene Wen Li Yang The Boxers and Saints and... Boxers and Saints and The Eternal Smile. And American Born Chinese. Uh, Shadow Hero is a graphic novel came through first, second Mm -hmm. last year. And it's... uh, Have you read it? Uh, not yet. It's on my to-read list. Mm-hmm. It's a redo version of a character, an actual character called the Green Turtle, which was the first Asian American superhero. But because it was the actual Golden Age, they weren't allowed to actually oh, no. make no. It wasn't racist because they weren't allowed to actually mention that he was a- Asian American. Uh-huh. So he was basically he was going to be slightly Asian American. So this wasn't like Fu Manchu. No, no, no. He was okay. a superhero. Oh, okay. And it's a uh, you know huh. bring it back to the modern day. I think. I heard good things about it because it's going like, well, yeah, it's so, good. Yeah. So, um, okay. I, should, I, wish I should give it a shot. <laughs> I'm curious to know who will win. That's a, like, that's a very interesting. Who's the most diverse? Well, there's a combination here of like, there's web comics, there's published comics, there's a, there's a Marvel book in here. Shaft is being put out by who? Dynamite. Dynamite. So it's an interesting mix of, of all of these different disciplines for creating comics and it'll be interesting to see who comes out on top okay shall we go to solicit because there's there's plenty to talk about wow okay we'll start with marvel yes and there's this small event that there you know i think we've mentioned a bit and marvel been talking about it okay 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 so secret wars number one and two i am going to quote lucille bluth from arrested development i won't hear it and i won't respond to it 
the first two issues by Jonathan Aikman and Asad Ribic, five bucks each, forty pages. Um, I'll just be over. If if you're a uh, if you're a Hickman fan, you know, go for it. I'm I'm tired and Sean was never in there. <laughs> uh, Ultimate End number one of five by Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Begley. It's the end of the Ultimate Universe for like. And the, I feel fine. <laughs> the third, the fourth time after Ultimatum, Cataclysm, uh, you know the the Ultimate it just Ending. Won't die. Yeah. He's putting it down and he's coming back. Um, now here's an interesting one. Inferno number one, uh, Dennis Hopeless and Javier Garon. This is a what-if scenario where the X-Men lost Inferno. If you don't actually know what Inferno is... You're young. Good news, you were born after 1989. What happened was that Jean, Cray, Jean Grey's clone, Madeline Pryor, made a deal with a de- demon Naster to sacrifice her son so she could create a bridge between Earth and Limbo. Demons invaded Manhattan. Ileana Rasputin turned into a demon and then reverted to a seven-year-old. Madeline Pryor killed herself and gave Jean Grey her memories and a fragment of the Phoenix Force. And why any of this should matter 25 years later is completely beyond me. Who's writing that? Dennis Hopeless. That's all I needed to know. So, yeah. It's, okay, it's obviously an Inferno tie-in. Right? All of these alternate multiple worlds coming together, but uh, Inferno? Really? You couldn't pick something that, like... (laughs) Atlantis attacks! Oh, God! That's like, well, why don't we just... Evolutionary war! The Mole Man attacks Manhattan and the Fantastic Four respond. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna bring in the joy. Where Monsters Dwell, one of five, by Garth Ennis and Red Bruin, Fighter Plans... Planes versus dinosaurs. Is that not the randomest thing you ever saw in a Marvel? God movie? bless you, Garth Ennis. Where did this come? First of all, God bless oh, you, no, Garth no, no, Ennis. No. Here's the thing. First of all, the, the solicitation text explicitly calls out the fact that Garth Ennis is the creator of the boys. Someone explain to me why he's at Marvel. Let's start with that, right? He had a very long and successful uh, Punisher run there. Yes, but I find it so interesting that Ennis, like Ellis, have gone, they have made so much noise about how much they hate mainstream superheroes, how much they hate all of the, the, and somehow they keep coming back. Now I know it's because they love a check. Everybody loves to get because, the big bag of money. Because That's, Ennis doesn't actually write superheroes most of the time. That's well, not a superhero comic. That's just fighter planes versus dinosaurs. Yes, but it seems strange that he would go to Marvel with that. Like, why? Why I, don't, I don't have a problem it? with that. Warren Ellis, I have a problem with is him. Is this because... a Secret Wars tie-in? I assume. Because it was positioned yeah. in the previous yeah. with the rest of the Yeah, time. so it's a secret. So Garth Ennis is doing a Secret Wars he's tie-in. He's just doing a war comic with dinosaurs, which is a thing that he's done in the past. Mm-hmm. It was one of the best Hitman storylines, and Hitman 1 was one of the best series ever published. So I'm for it. Okay, so here's a bomb for the Lost of Secret Avengers, Tom. Chris Yost and Amil Karpina are doing Modoc Assassin, in which there are many, many Modocs. <sighs> so much Modocs. I love Modoc. Very Modoc. Yeah, I love Modoc, but I love Modoc in certain hands. I'm Chris Yost. Hmm, could be good, could be bad. He's, he's up and down, you know. He's usually co-writing with... He had a, a, yeah, a very a, frequent collaborator. Yeah. I don't think they've been working together for quite a lately, while. But they were sort of funny back then. Craig Kyle. Craig Kyle. That was the other one. What? 
Oh, there's, and you know, they're tempting me because it's Modoc, there's a lot of Modocs, and there's a damn James Togo cover, which is <laughs> glorious to look at. Well, curse you, curse you, James Stoko, for making me want to read projects that I wouldn't want to read otherwise. Hey, you never know. It might turn out well. Okay, speaking of, well, not actually related, A-Force, number one. Oh, right, we mentioned that. Well, yeah, we should probably mention it's coming out in May uh, by G. Will Wilson and Margaret Bennett with uh, George Molina on art. This is the all-female Avengers team. And again... This is the only Secret Wars tie-in that I'm going to be checking out. And again, horrible title. Really bad title. Looks like a good book. Shame. Uh, and I should mention The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, number 5, by Ryan North and Erica Henderson. Because they're doing something smart. The first story arc was over after four issues, and now they're doing a stopgap. You know, a collection of short stories for this issue to allow you to catch a breather, and prepares her for the next arc, which is properly separated. More titles should do this. Yes. That's a good idea. It allows readers to have a jumping on point. Absolutely. I think that uh, it's good that, first of all, it figures that Ryan North specifically would do this. Because he is coming from a place where experimenting and trying different things has worked for him in the past. With Boom, with Adventure Time. So... The fact that he's bringing that philosophy to Marvel might actually be a good thing in the long run. So I'm, I'm all for that. Okay. Um, and then there was the Omnibus that we have to mention. Ultimate Marvel Omnibus Volume 1 by yeah. Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Miller, and Bill James. Why? Bill James is Bill credited. Jam- is credited. Is Mark... Is, oh. Is Marvel in there? No. What What did Bill Jamis do for, for Ultimate? He started the idea. Anyway, it's a collection Ooh. of the first story arcs of the four Pioneer Ultimate Marvel series, Ultimates, Ultimate X-Men, Spider-Man, and Fantastic Four. And why? Feel, okay, okay. I feel like this might be the appropriate venue to discuss why the Ultimate line, the, the intentions behind its creation and why it collapsed. Because if they are marketing this omnibus and they are marketing like Ultimate Line the end and these things are what, fifteen years apart? Yeah. Okay. When the Ultimate Line first started, and I think you can see it very clearly in the arcs that this omnibus is collecting, there was a very conscious attempt to say, let's start from scratch with familiar characters, but do enough to sort of shake things up. I remember, and I don't say this often, but Mark Miller, of all the people in the world, had an actual good idea or two when he was doing Ultimate X-Men. He had this thing where Jean and Wolverine start out in a relationship, and then she dumps him for Cyclops, which was such a unique way of handling that constant love triangle, which hasn't really been in play lately because Jean is, well, let's not get into that. But, um... So there was sort of this attempt to, on the one hand, start from scratch without the baggage of continuity, without having to reference Onslaught, without having to do, like, to carry all of these things with them, because, you know, Marvel doesn't do crises. They don't do reboots. So the Ultimate Line was a good alternative. Unfortunately, it was Bendis, Miller, and Ellis. And... With the best will in the world, these were not the people to do innovative and accessible interpretations of the characters. Because what ended up happening was that in Ultimate X-Men, you hated everybody. Because, you know, Mark Miller's default characterization is douchebag. 
So everyone was obnoxious. And then he was replaced by Brian Vaughn, who actually did do some really brilliant tricks and twists on the formula. But then they gave it to Kirkman. And wow, that's when I, things I, I went don't, completely off the I rails. don't think there's a problem with a certain writer. The problem is the actual idea, because it was supposed to be the accessible continuity-free universe, and you can't have an eternally continuity-free universe. You no, know, after no. ten years, you have continuity. That wasn't the problem. I do think it was the writers, because what happened, like, in, in practice, was that Bendis, for example, being Bendis, being the big nostalgia guy, so he's writing Ultimate Spider-Man, and every single issue, he would go back to something from the night. Here's Carnage. Here's Venom. Here's uh, Dr. Octopus. Like, he was constantly drawing from things that had happened in the 90s and, and beforehand, which, to be frank, the Ultimate Universe didn't really need. The one original character he brought in was Geldof. You remember Geldof, don't you? I do not remember Geldof. Good. Keep it that way. <laughs> but, really, like, th there was this tension between, on the one hand, the Ultimate Universe was supposedly the place where you could do new things. But all they ever did, because it was Ellis, because it was Miller, because it was Bendis, was they kept going back to the mainstream and bringing things in. And as a result of that, 15 years later, literally the only thing they want to salvage from that entire universe is Miles Morales. So, adios, Ultimate Universe. Also, $100 no. for four-story arcs. No. Nope. Too much. You know, just buy... Four-story arcs that were written at the height of the decompression trend. Yeah. You're not getting your money's worth, right? Okay, DC, I'm not Emergence. interesting. Yeah, not Maybe interesting. Not. There are some collections we should should mention. Uh, Batman Gothic by Morrison and Jensen gets the deluxe edition. Mm -hmm. And if you have not read it yet, what are you waiting for? And the question, falling in place, How TPB. random is that? That's the Rick Veach and Tommy Lee Edwards six-issue mini, which was very, very strange. What is there like a wheel at DC offices and they spin it and like whatever the collection randomized? Well, you remember a few months back we got a few months back we got the Nightwing Disco Edition, yes, which was a... it's a collection of the stories where he wears his disco outfit. Why would you do that? I I legitimately thought they were doing that because they were going to bring the disco outfit back in Grayson, which I would have laughed. So hard, but they didn't. Anyway, it, okay. Anyway, if you don't remember that series, obviously was you don't. Was this the first like use of the modern question? No, no, no. It it wasn't the modern question. version wasn't. No, it it wasn't Renee Montoya. It was. Uh... No, not Renee Montoya. I mean, like the the mo when I say modern, eh, uh, I'm referring to post crisis. No, no, because the Danny O'Neill series in right, the 1990s. Okay. The Anyway, the question for some reason in that series can actually talk to cities, and it's said in Metropolis, so he's spending most of the time in delirium conversation with the omniscient narrator. That was a weird it's thing. It's a bit of a trick. It's a bitch, yeah. so you know. Yeah. And Sandman Gallery Edition, which is apparently the DC's answer to IDW Artist Line, mm -hmm. which collects a random assortment of Sandman stories, including the first issue by Sam Keith. Uh, so short stories from uh, P. Craig Russell and Jeffrey Jones, That's what have you. Uh, the Dream Hunters. Yeah. And all of them in, you know, full scale, from direct from pencil shots, so if you're an art fan, fine, mm -hmm. but $175. Mm -hmm. 
$175 for a random assortment of stories. No. No. Especially since I will lay even odds that there are artist editions of Sandman properly collected. That's, no, not yet. That has to be a thing. That no, exists. not yet. You have the um, the absolute editions, which I think is just as good. Good enough. Point. Yeah. And at least there, like, it's collected properly. Yeah. Uh, Image. Image. A lot of stuff from Image. Yes. Uh, we mentioned Warren Ellis earlier, so him and Declan Shelby, right off the Red Hot uh, Moon Knight short, short series, are doing Injection. I believe you left out a name. Jordi Belair? Well, I don't have to mention Jordi Belair. <laughs> Just assume that she's yeah, there. Yes, if, unless, unless I've said otherwise, Jordi Belair is painting it. No, but seriously, like, how does she do it? I, I really want to know. Six like, arms and no sleep. She makes me feel so unaccomplished. She had charged Soleil should get married simply, <sighs> simply, you know, so they could do, she could ink all of his, uh, ink. She could color all of his projects. She's the only one who can. She's the only one who could keep up with him. Oh my god. God. Anyway, once upon a time, there were five crazy people, and they poisoned the 21st century, and now they have to deal with the corrosion and try to save us from a world becoming too weird to support human life. In other words, it's every Ellis story ever told, ever. No, 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 it's every, it's every second Ellis story, you know? <laughs> because I see no mention of a single guy, you know? It's a team Ellis book. That's a different from his solo Ellis books. No, it's not. There was this book that he did with... Um... Something about heroes and gas masks and cell phone batteries. No hero. No hero. That was easy. I said it and you already knew what it was. So, is it any different? Okay. Know. But you uh, know what? The man has his fans. I'm glad he's still getting work. Mythic number one. Now, here's a name you haven't heard in a while. Phil Hester. Art by John McRae. I have, I have heard him. He's drawing... What has he been doing? He's lately? drawing the Thrilling Adventure series. But, Bro. From Image. But for the mainstream, like, has he been doing big projects? I, I don't, don't remember. remember. I like him. Yeah, he's, he's well, he's writing this one. Yeah. Uh, I love the description. An Apache shaman, a Greek immortal, and a cell phone salesman fix malfunctions in magic. And, at, like, as always, I default to, like, my, my usual line when it comes to Image number one. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, and it's art by John McRae, who did Hitman for a long, long time, so he has my eternal support. Yeah. Yep. Okay, that's interesting. We were we didn't see that coming. Material number one by Ellis Scott and Will Tempest. The solicitations are nonsense, utter utter nonsense. A collection of one lines that mean nothing. But it's Ellis Scott. Good lord, man! Slow down. You're gonna burn yourself out, and we like you. Well, we well, don't want you. Well, to be... three series. He, he, he's well, off. He's off Secret Avengers, so he has mm-hmm. three ongoing series at one time. That's okay. Uh, he has a me- it's a mini series. Okay, but like he's getting a lot of work. But you know, again, we're both Cot fans. Yeah. I don't think we. I don't think we need anyone. We're angry Cot fans because the Surface Number One had not come out yet. Yeah. Yeah. But oh well. Oh well. So here's something interesting. Speaking of uh, books that we have reviewed in the past, The Mantle Number One, Ed Brisson and Brian Level. Now I'm not picking this up specifically because of Cluster. Last time when we reviewed mm. it. You know, the, the mantle is three ninety nine. The high concept is a teen is chosen as a new host for a superhero, and of course a villain is trying to kill him. I've seen that before, and the price is a bit high for something that, based on what Brisson did with Cluster, I'm not sure he could break the mold. I think it would end up being very, very generic, and not for four, not for three ninety nine. And the final uh, number one, Valhalla Mad by Joe Casey and Paul Mayberry. They worked together on Catalyst Comics two I have years to ago. Read the solicitation text. Go ahead. 
Their names are legend. The Glorious Nox, Greghorn the Battlebjorn, Jago the Irritator. Three warrior gods vacationing on Earth, just looking to get their drink on and have a good time. Join the drunken festivities with Toastmasters Joe Casey of Sex and Paul Maybury of Sovereign. The new mythology begins now. Well, we'll forgive him for Sovereign. That's the thing, like, you, of all the books you could have chosen to demonstrate, like, Sex and Sovereign are not necessarily titles that make me sit up and pay attention, but, but on the other hand, that description... I, I like I like me some Joe Casey. Yeah. And, uh, and Paul Mabry is a good, unique artist, you know, he has his style, you know. Good for them. I'm, I'm in it. Sure. Uh, uh, there's a bunch of books coming back. Mm-hmm. Rat Queens, Roche Limits, Rocket Girl, Trees. Joe Keating's Shudder is ending its first year and going on hiatus. Final issue of Peter Panzerfoss, which, despite being from the author of Rat Queens, I'm having more difficulty connecting to. Well, it's his first big project. Well, mm. big in the sense of personal, because nobody's reading Peter Panzerfoss. Nobody's guess, reading that. I guess they are. It, they're losing money, aren't they? It, it's mentioned every time they talk about it. They're losing money on that project, and I don't remember who's running Shadowland at Image. Valentino. I think Valentino. Yeah. Yeah. He was. He's basically saying, "I like it, so I'm going to support it, even though I'm losing. I'm bleeding money for every issue." Which good for them, because what will happen is this was always a limited series, since it's 25 issues. So they'll put it up in trades, and you never know. Yeah, now now that he's a hot on Red Queen, you know, I think uh, a book by Curtis J. Webby is going to sell. I guess. There is one other title I wanted to draw attention mm-hmm. to, simply because it's an unusual pick for Image. We did mention it uh, when they announced it at the Image Expo, Sons of the Devil Number 1, by, by Brian Buccellato and Tony Infante. The only reason I'm bringing this up is because it's, I think, this, the Fade Out and Thief of Thieves are the only high-profile, quote-unquote, realistic books that Image is putting out. No, uh, they have the um, Minimum Wage, which is still going. Is that ongoing? Because it's, it's a series of miniseries, Minimum Wage. Oh, okay. And they just so, announced a new one, so it's it's it exists. But it's not an ongoing. No. So it's interesting that I mean we've talked before about how Image Comics is dominated at the moment by science fiction and fantasy. And how I'm completely okay with that, because you really can't get science fiction and fantasy in many other places besides Image. So, this is more of a psychological horror story that is not witches, but rather something, you know, more grounded. Interesting approach. I'm willing to check out the first issue. Okay, uh, Dark Horse. The big one is obviously Fight Club 2, number one. Which is, it's the sequel to the Fight Club book. That movie. Where did this come from? By Chuck Palahniuk. By Chuck Palahniuk. The writer, the actual writer, with art by Cameron Stewart. This is not fan fiction. This is not some other writer coming aboard and doing a sequel. This is, they actually went and dug up Chuck Palahniuk and said, let's do Fight Club 2. Well, it's his, you know, it's his biggest project. You know, he, he, why in comics? Why, okay, why in comics? Why now? Why? 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 Like, I'm still stuck on what? Why Dark Horse of all? <laughs> well, I don't understand. I I don't know why. I'm interested. Is that not the most random thing you've ever heard of, though? No. Fight Club 2, as a comic book, not following up on the film, but following up on the novel. Which even the author admits is the better version. The uh, film is the better yeah. version. Yeah, I, I, I don't Well, know. it's Cameron Stewart on art, so it's going to look gorgeous. It and Dev Stewart on coloring, which, again, e- even more gorgeous, sir. 
if yeah. that's even a thing. Yeah, that's true. But wow. But also, see, this is the thing: Cameron Stewart on art, but it's Fight Club. Cameron Stewart can is do that really. Cameron Stewart can do Sea Guy and the other side. Cameron Stewart can do anything he wants. But his art is so stylized and so like really well done. And I feel like if you were going to do the Fight Club, you probably would go with Sam Keith. Mm, I as uh, like you know abstract and, and well, bizarre. we don't know. We don't know, and I'm curious. Okay. Not necessarily interested, but so so curious. It, well, it is weird. I mean. Yeah. And the fact that they got Jack Palani is doing a comic. Book. Well, if you want stylized and if you want odd, you can go directly to the collected editions and get the Kabuki Library Edition, Volume One by David Mack. Mm-hmm. That's four hundred pages for forty bucks in Have hardcover. You read I've read the Alchemy miniseries, and I was sitting there going, "That's a very well done thing," which I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Because David Mack, bless his hands, if not his heart. Is a brilliant artist. He's completely avant-garde. He's out there doing whatever he wants because I was buying that and it was like, it's a secret agent thing and I'm okay. So it's gonna be action and odd stuff and no, no, no. It's just people sitting and very, very oddly thinking and talking. Yeah, you remember that uh, he did that echo run on um, Daredevil. Yeah, that, that wasn't was very real. Well, like somebody, somebody reviewed it as for some reason, Daredevil has stopped, and we've got Echo's high school diary for five issues. Pretty much, that's that's what it was. So, and I'm and I'm interested again. I'm not Why? really because I want to again. It's his first. His two, artwork is gorgeous. I'm not yeah, and I'm interested to see how he was at the first because that's you know that's early early Kabuki. That's like right. twenty year old. I think it's probably going to be a bit more conservative. Because if, if, you know, David Mech would come with stuff like his later stuff right on the start to publishers like Dark Horse, they would probably kick him from the stairs. Why? Because Dark Horse is so discerning when it comes to publishing titles? Uh, odds <laughs> titles? That's the kind of weird that They're you only... They're doing that 9 million anime yeah. book, aren't they? Well, no, but, uh, you know, the thing that Kabuki became is the kind of weird fear that you can only allow yourself as a creator once you become famous enough to do whatever you want. Right. So I'm interested to see his early stuff. Plus, again, $40 for 400 pages of a hardcover. That's a great price. Mm-hmm. And we should probably mention in collections uh, something a bit more conservative. Uh, Creepy Presents Alex Toth, which oh. is a collection of all the horror stories Alex Toth has done for Creepy over the long, long years. One of the 68 pages, $20. Okay. Not nice price, but black and white, but whatever. And it's Alex Toth. You know, that's a classic name if you ever had any. Absolutely. Moving on to Boom. Okay. Some interesting releases. Um, Arcadia Number 1, written by Art Alex Pacnadel and art by Eric Scott Pfeiffer. As is usually the case with Boom, it's an interesting premise. So most of humanity has been wiped out by a virus, but it doesn't matter because 4 billion people were digitized and uploaded to this utopian cloud. Unfortunately... This utopia, Arcadia, is draining the resources needed by the remaining survivors in the real world. So there's this conflict between the digital people and the quote-unquote real people. So it's the Matrix without the machines. Pretty much. And I could go for that. I'm I'm curious. It's interesting. Yeah. With Boom, I'm always willing to. Okay. Speaking of Boom, Oh Killstrike. Oh God. Oh Killstrike number one of four by Max (laughs) Bennis. The singer of Say Anything, oh, which is boy. a band, 
in case, you know, I said singer, in case you didn't understand that he sings in a band. And, and I'm making quotation marks around the word singer, but never mind. And artist Logan Ferber, uh, that's not his first comic book project. He also did Dream Thief? No. No. Dream Polarity. He did Polarity. Yes. Which I, I remember enjoying the first issue of Polarity, but not picking up the trade. I completely forgot about it. That. Good. No. I read a few more issues of it. Mm. And, eh. Anyway, Jared, a new father, fears parenthood, and as an old comic fan, he turns for them to comfort. But then he unwittingly let loose his favorite character, Killstrike, a single-minded, vengeance-loving 90s anti-hero into the world. Now, as soon as the words 90s anti-hero came up, I was like, you know... But that's a gag on them. It's not It's not a Rob Life on fan letter. <laughs> Well, well, we don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly. It's like, do I wanna, really like. Do the you want to risk it opening it up and seeing like you know a loving paean to probably tell? Well, considering we, considering profit and glory, yes. Pe- people who are not Rob Liefeld doing Rob Liefeld field things I feel like turned have, out to be a good idea. No, I feel like you have to be either Joe Keating or uh, uh, Brandon Graham in order to pull that. Ellen Moore Supreme. No, not really. Oh, oh, oh. Not you. really, not one of my um, Again, I'm... Uh, okay. I, I just uh, love the name. Oh, Killstrike. <laughs> oh, Killstrike. So, okay. Here's... This one I have mixed feelings about. Lantern City number one. Uh, Paul Jenkins, Matthew Daly, Carlos Magno. This is a steampunk dystopia playing on this darkness and light dichotomy. Blah, blah, blah. Seems standard, but... It's it's Paul Jenkins. Now, Jenkins, I have very, very mixed feelings for. Because he had this really great run on Inhumans, and he's done some, some good work. But this is the guy who turned Speedball into Penance, who did that horrifically tone-deaf confrontation between Captain America and Sally Floyd at the yeah. end of the Civil War, where she told him, like, you know, you don't understand America because you don't know what MySpace is or something like that. I don't know. You don't watch NASCAR. And... Kids, MySpace was a... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> saying that now is even funnier. He did Wolverine Origins, for God's sake. I mean... But he also did a series of very good Spider-Man stories at the time. Yeah, so it's... And, yeah. and I mean, he did the century before the century became... A problem. Unwelcome, shall we say. Yeah. So... And he also did Fairy Quest for Boom. Which, okay, you couldn't escape the Fables parallels, but, you know, it was decent for what it was. So I don't know. Like, it's a boom series, and I had the instinct to try it out, but on the other hand, Paul Jenkins is a guy that you legitimately, it's difficult to predict how it'll go. It could either be pretty good, or it could be a complete catastrophe. Okay, and IDW, if we spoke earlier about continuations of old books... Mm. Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency number one by writer Chris Rael and artist Tony Atkins. It's a continuation of the two book series what? by Douglas Adams what? about an odd, odd detective in an odd, odd world. I need someone to please, please explain to me where are these things coming from? I feel like every time you open the previews lately, there's there's and, always some random thing that you don't know. And where you know, Chuck Palinu can do a sequel to his own series. Someone who's not Douglas Adams touching oh. Douglas Adams' stuff. That's a, that's like bad touch. That's because Douglas Adams I feel like there might be a few creators who could potentially hit the ballpark of what Douglas Adams is doing, but Yeah, but Terry but Terry Pratchett is busy. and he's not yeah, writing comics, I so never write comics. 
So other than that, you know, why? No. I don't know who Chris Royale is, no. but you know, and I can see the appeal because modern day strange detective is a thing, but that's not the kind of thing that Dirk, Dirk Gently was. No. Dirk Gently was almost a parody on today's, you know, Sherlock's elementaries, whatever, before they existed. And I'm, I, why? Well, IDW. Why? That's yes, the question, why? Well, but IDW is making it up to us because they're releasing Godzilla: The Half Century War, oversized hardcover by James Tocco. Have you read this? No. Okay, this? Godzilla: The Half Century War was a five-issue minis written, drawn by the great James Tocco from mm-hmm. Orkstein fame, and the big concept was this single Japanese soldier who becomes a member of the Godzilla hunting unit. And each issue takes place in a different decade as they have their, you know, ongoing fight. He's trying to hunt the giant monster and the giant monster just come after Godzilla. So it started off in the 50s uh-huh. and then it's a 60s hippie thing and then it's a 70s post-Vietnam thing and then it's an 80s giant robots thing. And Godzilla is present throughout. Yes, yes. It's a literal half century of war. Ah, it was... It came out in 2012, I think. It was, in my yeah, mind, the best... It was, in my mind, the best miniseries of that year. And I'll it's James it Stoko, so you know it's gonna look good. I will definitely check it out. Okay, and just, I just want to mention, we don't usually talk about for a second, but we should mention Exquisite Corpse Hardcover. Yes. It's a French graphic novel translated to English uh, from, from someone called Penelope Bijou. I think it's spelled that way. Bijou? Bijou, Bijou. B-A-G-I-E-U. God, you're terrible with names. Yes, I'm terrible with I'm, names. I'm assuming she's French. Yes. Okay. Uh, and it's about uh, a woman who stumbles, coincidentally, into the life of a very famous author. And the only problem with that stumbling is that he's supposed to be dead. Yeah. And he's been publishing for years, you know, his posthumous work. You know, oh, it's the new novel found in, found in the archives by the great author so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And she mistakenly stumbles upon the scheme that he and his wife concocted years ago. And she's going to have to question herself, should she publish it? Should she make it aware? And she doesn't even know who he is. You know, he's this huge deal, big name guy, but she doesn't know, as the title said, Belzec from Batman. <laughs> and the art looks exquisite, and I love it. I, sure. I'm, you know, I already ordered. I'll check it out. Okay, that's, that's the solicit. On to reviews. Okay, uh, what shall we start with? Uh, let's start with eight. Or, eight. Hmm, is it pronounced eight? Eight. 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 It's a time travel thing, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, okay, there's this guy who wakes up after a crash at some unknown location, at some unknown time, mm-hmm. and the issues interspose between his current plight, which is people are chasing him and trying to capture him, and whatever happened to him before, which brought, which brought A, this crash, and B, the odd memory loss that he had. And... I think it's a very traditional first issue mystery thing. If it was an ongoing, I'd be kind of afraid, but because it's a five issue mini, I'm like, 
Yeah, okay, you can, you can, you know, just end the issue with a question mark of what's going on because, uh, you know it's gonna end soon. And you don't have to worry, oh my god, it's gonna confuse the whole thing. And the big draw for most people would be it's Rafael Albuquerque on art. Because that guy has been blowing up the scene ever since he, what, 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 what made him famous? American Vampire, right? Mm-hmm. And before that, some Oni project, Mondo Urbano, whatever. Probably. And I'm not sure about it because if we we talked about last episode about uh, Grant Morrison's. <laughs> um, I you mean I ranted for twenty minutes about Grant Morrison's deliberate obscurity. No, no, no. Um, the fish people of Madmado. <laughs> whatever, nameless. Nameless. Yes. You couldn't yeah. even remember the name. That tells you how you. No, because it's na- no, because it's nameless. I, see, and Anonymous. I think. The problem with something like this is that it's not obscure enough. Because you have all these flashbacks which basically explain to you this is what's happening while the odd stuff is supposed to be happening. So if it's supposed to be odd and disorienting for the reader as much as the character, it doesn't work. Because whenever something weird happens, we immediately jump back to a flashback of somebody saying, this is what's going to happen. And if it's meant to be an explanation of what's going on, well, then it's too simple because... Okay, yes, you were saying what we're saying, and then we're seeing it. Yeah, that I, I also had mixed feelings about this one, and the reason was, I feel like, in this particular issue, Albuquerque and Johnson wasted a lot of space that could have been used better. And the example that I have is, you know, when Joshua, the protagonist, stumbles onto these bandits, they knock him out, we get a flashback, he wakes up, tries to run, they knock him out again. Yeah. It's a repetition that, if this were an ongoing, I might have an easier time forgiving sort of a more decompressed approach. But this first issue is, it's set up, but it's incomplete setup. We know who Joshua is. We don't know why. We know who his target is. We don't know what the significance is. We don't know what the, he, he mentions in one of the flashbacks, this deal that he struck with the scientist. We don't have any frame of reference for what that is. There's this one-page flashback to the future timeline that's like in the middle of the issue for no reason, where he buys when he buys the the roses. No, he he it travels to he travels to the future. No, I think that that's before he goes back into the the meld. No, the meld is. no, no, doesn't he? Is because the the thing you know in the beginning you have the past is green, the present is purple, the future is blue, and the meld is something else entirely. But there's no purple in this issue. Yes, but there is a lot of blue when he first wakes up. You know, the whole yeah. first chunk of the issue is his, his is blue team. are primarily in blue, which led me to assume that he's from the future. But then, where he traveled to? Because well, all the they say that oh yeah, well, he traveled to the meld, which is somewhere because else. because it starts with blue tinge in the background, and then quickly it becomes uh, well, it's blue tinge from the ship. I like the concept that he has, like, Albuquerque has this very clever concept of color coding everything according to that scheme of the past is this color and the future is this color that even extends to, for example, when he's trying to communicate with the future and he's failing, the screen is blue, right? So he's trying to contact the future. When he gets a response, the screen is green. So he's getting a response from the past. In other words, he is sort of using these subtle cues, but on the other hand, there's so much space here that... Well, it's not very subtle. It basically tells you on the first page, this is what's happening. No, but in the sense that he 
when you have combinations of blue and yellow or green and purple and all of these things coming together, it's interesting. Plus the fact that this meld, wherever he ends up, is something that is this strange combination of you have on the one hand uh, uh, dinosaurs and you have these steampunk band-aids. And well Mad Max people. Mad Max people, but also you have the sort of medieval guy at yeah, the end. Yeah, med- medieval tyrant guy. Yeah. So it's commands a- the spear. Very strange, but I feel like it would have been better if Albuquerque and Johnson had used the space that they had more intelligently. Because like you said, this is a five-issue miniseries, and I had the opposite reaction of, if this were an ongoing, I could forgive sort of random asides like that bit with the roses. You know what I think? I think it was meant to be a graphic novel, and it's got divided to publication. Arbitrarily stopped at the end of the issue. Uh, The pacing is just completely off. Because I'm interested. Um, It's one of those... I might pick up the trade. Yeah, because I think the trade is what we're meant to read. But as a first issue, it's a bit of a... It's a mixed bag. I, I very nice art. You know? Yes. I'm not the biggest Albuquerque fan, but I, I get, you know, why people like him. And Well, to be honest, this is very different from what he does in American Vampire. Or... Because American Vampire, the one of the most appealing things that he does with the artwork there is he's very, very good at creating these very disturbing forms of vampirism. And here it's, it's much more, I mean... It's science fiction, not yeah. horror. Even in the context of science fiction, you know, these dinosaurs are typical. It's Yeah, it's like generic Velociraptor, which isn't even a thing. Yeah. And the ship design isn't very interesting. And we talked about it in the last few episodes when we did Cluster, when we did Dave. If you want to do generic science fiction story, that's fine. But at least if you're doing it in a visual medium, at least be visually brilliant. You know, give us something that we haven't seen before. And this is something we have seen before. Absolutely. Something we have seen before, the series. Something we have seen before, also a theme in this very uh, episode, because yeah, uh, the next book that we'll review is Silk Number One by Robbie Thompson and Stacey Lee from from Marvel. Speaking of things we've seen before, no, okay, so here's the background: Cindy Moon was bitten by the same spider as Spider-Man. She was then locked in a bunker for ten years until Spider-Man let her out. Then Spider-Verse happened, and now we're in the aftermath. Now, full disclosure, I didn't read Spider-Verse. Neither did I. I read parts of Spider-Verse. <laughs> yeah, I read the, the Spider-Gwen issue, and that was it. So this is Silk number one. I'm coming into it blind. This is my first impression of Cindy, and it's not good. Here's my problem. Thompson went too far on the side of caution. What do I mean by that? Cindy is too much like Peter Parker. She works at the Daily Bugle. She has this constant self-deprecating inner monologue. She has family issues. Her powers are almost identical to his. And you know what? Cindy Moon may have spent the last decade in the bunker, but we as readers have not. We have seen a long line of spider women who were very different from Peter. Jessica Drew is nothing like Peter Parker. Neither was Julia Carpenter. Aranya fought evil with yo-yos. Mayday Parker from MC2 could repel objects and she was explicitly a better hero because she came from this stable family and a good life and she decided to be a hero anyway. So she didn't have that constant guilt chasing after her. And Spider-Gwen number one came out yesterday and we chose not to review that because I felt that it would be obvious. But it is obvious. Like Jason Latour's take on Spider-Gwen is a little lighter and a little, you know, she's, she's the lead singer in a 
girl band. She, they, they. Well, I. She's more unique, despite the fact. I mean, I'm saying she's unique. She's Gwen Stacy, but she's still unique. Cindy Moon as an original character. There's, there's nothing here that is individual or unique I think or there, different. I, I think there is. The major difference between her and Spider-Man is that she, like you said, she's a very Peter Parker character. But unlike Spider-Man, she can seem to shake it off when she's in the costume. She has the constant doubt and embarrassment even while she's fighting. You know, when Spider-Man beats up someone, the jokes come naturally to him. He managed to sleep on, on the mask. When she fights, she's like, what am I doing? I'm not sure what I'm doing. I'm she is like that a lot, too. I don't, he has that well, self-doubt. And, and yeah, but we're here the self-doubt in his thoughts. Here we actually see someone who is a self-doubting superhero on the surface as well as beneath the surface. That's interesting to me. My biggest problem with the issue was the fact that it's something coming out from the Spider-Verse crossover thing because... I was enjoying it as a first issue. This is a superhero. This is her supporting cast. This is her life. This is what she's doing. And whenever they mentioned that she was stuck 10 years in a bunker, I'm, I'm like, was she? She doesn't act like someone who's a psychological wreck because being stuck exactly. for 10 years in a bunker... And I assume there was some explanation for that in, in Spider-Verse, but I'm not supposed not to... Not my say, problem. Yes. You know? And it's an issue number because one. Spider-Verse was written by Dan Slott, and this is by Robbie Thompson, so and why should I even... You know, and I don't think it's too much like Spider-Man. I think, if anything, it's very much like the post. Uh, we talked about it, Adventures of Superhero Girls, superheroes. Well, it's a very, it's a very Bendat. It's a very Spider Gwen. It's a very b- new Bad Girls no, style thing. No. Yeah. See, I'm going to disagree there because what happens here is that Thompson is shooting himself in the foot. We've talked about how Silk is part of this very coordinated and organized push in Marvel. To put more female superheroes on the front lines. But you can't get there if the women that you're pushing are so similar to their male predecessors that you could basically do without them. I mean, think about it. When you're talking about Marvel, right? X-23 is nothing like Wolverine. She-Hulk is nothing like the Hulk. Carol Danvers is nothing like Marvel. You have these female versions of male superheroes who manage to distinguish themselves either through their power set or through their personalities or through something that really does make her unique. Now, you're saying, like, the thing that distinguishes Silk is the fact that, unlike Peter Parker, who doesn't externalize his doubts, she openly admits that she's self-doubting. But it's still the same doubt. Like, Peter Parker has that same issue of not being able to... Peter Parker? Peter Parker has that same issue of, you know, being... having a lack of confidence in himself, not being able to be... He's not like Wolverine. Right? That, that's the contrast between them. And she is exactly the same. And she comes off as second rate because of the fact that she can't put it, you know, she can't push it down. She can't project this more confident, uh, exterior. So if that is the only thing that separates her and Spider-Man, why do we need her around? Well, because, uh, right now Spider-Man is doing a completely different thing under Dan Slot. But Spider-Verse introduced 800 billion variants of Spider-Man. And I feel like every one of them was more distinct than Cindy Moon. I, and in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll go, this might be a little unfair, but the letter pages point out that Robbie Thompson writes for Supernatural on the CW, and that cinched it for me. Because most of Supernatural's existence over the last 10 seasons has been a series of pale imitations of better shows. That's what it is. And, and now, Silk, 
really, like, aside from the issue that she is openly self-doubting where Peter, but also she makes jokes. It's not that she does not do Peter's whole, you know, witty repartee, etc. She does it. She's just not as convincing as he is. And I guess the other distinction being that her spider sense is slightly more refined or less refined. She has some variations clear. on the power. She can create clothes with the silk. Yeah. See, but I... But that's not enough. I disagree. I think he made something interesting here out of something which is intentionally uninteresting. She's the distaff counterpart, and she knows that she's the second person bitten by the spider. And, that, and that's a conscious thing about someone... You know, that's a legacy superhero while the legacy is still ongoing... And she knows she's in a problem. But how does that make her different from Aranya? Hmm? How does that make her Because Aranya never wanted to be Spider-Girl. Aranya, she is Spider-Girl. But she, t- well, she took it because she didn't have any choice. There was this joke in the, was it the Jeff Parker run where she was like, well, I didn't want to be called Spider-Girl, but everybody kept on calling me Spider-Girl, so whatever. Right. And here it's like, I want to be a superhero. I want to help people. I want to be like Spider-Man. He's still around, and he's this huge shadow, and I can't live up to what what I'm trying to live up to. And if she were the only Dicef counterpart, I would be able to accept that. The problem is that she currently exists within a continuum of a very long line of spider women, all of whom have managed to distinguish themselves more than her. If she was the only one, then I would be like, okay, so it's it's sort of self-defeating to portray her as almost like Peter Parker, but not quite as good. Because you're already creating a situation in which, yes, she's a legacy character, but she's also explicitly inferior to him. Well, so, but again, like, she's there while Jessica Drew is also there, and Jessica Drew doesn't take crap from anybody. Well, I I didn't care for the Jessica Drew series, so, you know. Neither did I, but it's the idea of the character. Why not? You can do interesting things with character who's consciously trying to achieve something. Brian reads Miss Marvel, the whole... Thing of that series was Miss Marvel knowing that she's not the best there is, and that pe- there are people who are more famous than her, and trying to achieve something. Uh, gravity. But when Fred, Fred, Fred Miss Marvel was around, she didn't have to contend with Captain Marvel. Okay, Fred Van Lente's Gravity, which was the whole series of, oh my God, I'm this small fry in this huge world, and nobody takes me seriously. Gravity was unique. Who was? This is okay. Gravity would have failed. If there had been an older or more secure version of Gravity, you know, someone that he was actually... In fact, the hero that ends up giving Gravity affirmation at the end of that series was well, Spider-Man. Spider-Man. So, it, it's sort of... Because everybody wants to be Spider-Man. Yeah, well, also, I mean, we're talking about Gravity, but what happened to him at the end, but... Flynn McDuff, we brought him back. He's fine. Is he? It, last I've read about it was <laughs> his appearance in Flynn McDuff. I fantastic don't read it, and I don't acknowledge it. Anyway, again, like it's the lack of a distinguishing feature, I think. That's the problem. It's the fact that, on the one hand, she is part of a much larger group that has managed to stick out in different ways. Like, look, I'm not saying that Aranya is, like, the greatest character ever created. Of course not. <laughs> but at least when you look at her, you can say, you know, she's different enough from Spider-Man that there's some justification, in spite of the fact that, really, her origin story was smack dab in the middle of when... JMS was doing that whole mystical spider totem yeah. thing, and really, we don't need to go there. But th- there's not enough here. Like I, I can't recommend. I, dis- I disagree. I would recommend Spider. I mean, it's, you know, the especially hilarious thing is that this comic came out last week, and Spider Gwen came out yesterday, 
and you could not find two more different interpretations of female counterparts to Spider-Man. Well, that's good. And Le- But Latour's version is so much better because Gwen is different. Well, I really like this one. I like the okay. idea of the shrinking violet superhero. Uh, we should probably mention the art because it's great. The art is good. It's serviceable. Um, it's very dynamic. It's very yeah. fun. It's cartoonish. Properly cartoonish, yes. I would say. Well, okay, we disagree on that one. And we'll go on to our next, our last first issue. Which should have been the circus number one. Grr, image. Grr, image, grr. And, and just, just as last time we had to turn to Ryan Ferrier for help <laughs> when an image book was late, now we turn again to Ryan, Ryan Ferrier. Ferrier. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan Ferrier, for Crumb Stump number one with uh, Devaki Neogi. And Neil Alon. And Neil Alon. Two Ryan Ferrier comics in a row. (laughs) In fact, you ended a review of Dave by saying, let's see what he does next. Yeah, here we go. go. It's a four-issue mini from Boom Studios. Mm -hmm. And it's it's the female version of the Warriors. Speaking of the Steph counterparts, it's the female version of the 1979. You cannot get away from it. Yeah. I guess, I mean, he acknowledges it, so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing and that he's And it's very odd, because the concept and the presentation are very much the Warriors, but then you, you go to the, actually, to the actual issue, and it's not quite... It's called Crumb Stump. It's not very violent most of the time. It's not very go-go. It's not very... Yeah. It's not very... Well, well there is an actual Crumb Stump. Yeah, here, but... but... It's, it's, not, it's not a punk thing. It's a very slow character-driven drama. It's weird. You 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 the see the pres- of the characters definitely draws on a lot of punk tropes. Yeah, you, know, you have Violet with the the short afro. You have, you have the Derby Betty, Girl, Derby Girl, Machete Betty. Like the 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 characters themselves do seem to be influenced by this sort of punk aesthetic that definitely comes from the Warriors. But um, this was a weird read for me. Yeah, it's I don't. It's like the story draws one way and the actual script. Draws to a completely different way. Yeah. Because the story, you, you read the solicitations and you see the covers and the other thing, okay, it's gonna be an action-packed, you know, pastiche of 1970s, 1980s explosion stuff. But then you read the story and it's like, no, it's family drama and there's a lot of politics. And you know what? That two-page monologue by the mayor. You know? It stops everything. It like stops you, cold. You know what? It's, and it's not as bad as this, but it's the best comparison I can find it. It's like you're coming into Star Wars and you got Episode One, The Phantom Menace, oh, <laughs> with all the politics. No. It's not that bad, but no, it, yes, it's, it is. But no, no, not Phantom oh, Menace. This is not as. But one. you know, it's you want one thing and you get something completely different. Yeah, that might be part of the problem that I'm having here because when it starts out, like it's not entirely clear to me, and I think this is deliberate. It's not clear when the story is set. Is this something that happens in the past? Uh, I, I assume it's the past. Future? I, I assume know. it's the past because, you know, is there a cell phone here? Not that I've seen. And, you know, there's old-timey guy. But it could and... just as easily be like low-tech post-apocalypse. I don't know. <laughs> and you have these gangs, and they're all controlling their patches of land. Yes, there's three barrows around the big city who's... Mm-hmm. That's actually a thing called Big City or something like that. I think so. It's never actually named. Yeah. And and you know the the so you have the wrath, you have uh, the fever, you have all of these gangs. And but what wasn't clear to me is so they go on patrol, and there's a treaty in place to prevent 
all-out gang warfare. But if there's a treaty in place, why why is the trespassing such an issue? What happened? It's very unclear what, what's going on. Like, there's not enough world building here in comparison to something like Dave. Yeah. Because Dave, for example, by page five, you knew everything that you needed to know about the setup of the world. And here, I feel like I was a little lost because, you know, the girls are running around back and forth. And in fact, the actual threat, so to speak, doesn't show up until the last few pages. And then it's really not clear why or who, like the, the leader of the male gang that's threatening the fevers is working He's having a mayor. For, it's because that's what you want when you buy a comic called Carb Stump, you know, uh, Mayor negotiating about uh, tourism boards. That's what you want. And, and like that scene with the mayor, where he's basically explaining his evil plan, goes on for two pages in the middle of the comic. And just like uh, um, just like the flashback with the roses in eight, it stops the flow dead. Like the momentum just stops, so that you can have this overextended monologue. And the problem is that it's not. Like, in the abstract, you understand that the mayor is talking about gentrifying Old Beach so that he can kick the fever out. But you don't get enough of a sense that the fever are invested in their homes. Well, right? no, he's... I think the writer, Free Air, is actually <laughs> trying, you know. We do get snippets of their home lives. But, but it's their home life that's defined by their family, not by where they are. Yeah. And it's, it's just... And strange. the art... I like the design sense of the art, but yeah. it's very stilted. It's very, very stilted in the action scene, you know. You well, can... there's really only one action scene. No, here. but even in the... In, there's this character who's supposed to be running. She doesn't appear like she's running. She appears to be standing in place, you know, for the for the still shot. Yeah. It's And it's... You need a bit more movement here. And it's odd, because it's not a very, you know, heavy line. and It's not a very detailed... Uh, Surfaces. Most of the backgrounds are non-existent. Yeah. So you sh- you, should... you don't even get a sense of what Old Beach is like as a place. Well, you get Which... enough sense from the character design. I think it's like yeah. again. But the character designs are so different. I mean, there's no for all that the Fever are like this gang and they stick together. There's no uniformity in their appearances. Like Violet does not look anything like Derby Girl, and Derby Girl doesn't look anything like Machete Betty. So it's very. Very, very bizarre. And again, the comparison to the Warriors is obvious, but the Warriors was a movie which brought its themes to bear through its moviness, you know, through yeah. the imagery and through characters' interaction, not by people standing and saying, this is what we are. Mm. And it was a fantasy movie, you know, nobody actually thought the Warriors was a true representation of <laughs> gangland life. And no, this one... No more so than West Side Story. Yes, and this one is too toned down to be the proper Warriors clone wants to be. The problem. It's, you know, you, you expect it to be high death and you get a family drama. It's like, it's, it, you know what it is? It's its own TV adaptation. The one, it's the thing, yeah. it's, it's the version of the story that has to worry about budget and location shots. And censorship. Like, I'm not gonna, okay, so I'm usually the one who thinks that comics can be a bit too juvenile when it comes to representations of violence, but I feel like if you're going to talk about gangs and gang warfare, you could do a little more. You know, you could be a little more graphic and a little more violent if only to demonstrate that these are the stakes. And it doesn't happen. Yeah. And in fact, like, Machete Betty does the titular curb stomp, 
and the guy survives. And that is just like because he, because they feels, they she doesn't want him to kill what doesn't want her to kill anybody she but it feels weirdly sanitized yeah, like yeah. If these these girls are in a gang by definition they should not be afraid of killing people especially if there's like this very fragile treaty that implies that there was some kind of war in the past yeah and um, it's just I'm disappointed I, I expect too. I really looked forward to that series. To this series yeah uh, I I you know I like the presentation I like the art and the solicits I like we loved right here and this one it's a misfire yeah I'm not gonna come back well it happens neither will I and we'll finish with a collection and this one has been long time coming I is the collected edition actually out or not to my knowledge. soon it's it's soon coming to come out so it's but, an arc. We yeah we yes we're talking about the first eight issues of Lumberjanes by Noel Stevenson and Grace Ellis. Grace Ellis. Art by Brooke Allen. From Boom. From Boom Studios. Now, Only Boom could have done this. It was supposed to be an eight-issue mini. It was published originally as an eight-issue mini. By issue three, it became an ongoing. So that's the first arc. And that's both the good and the bad of that because you can see this thing... You know, the minute when they do the gear shift up. Yes. Well, we can't close everything right now. We have to leave some things you open. You can tell exactly when Noel Stevenson knew that it was going to be... Uh, okay, let's let's start off with what's it about. Uh, okay. Lumberjanes is an all-ages uh, comic about a group of female scouts. Girl Scouts. Yeah, it's not the actual Girl Scouts. You're not supposed to use the name Girl Scouts because well, it's I mean, trademark. They have... Scout badges. Yes, they're in nature, in summer camp, and there's, it's about a specific cabin of five, five girls? Five. Five girls plus their troop leader. Yeah, plus their troop leader, and they discover, uh, as time goes on, that there's strange secret <laughs> beyond, uh, the summer, the Roanoke summer camp. So it's basically Erie, Indiana, if you actually remember that show. Wow, you're taking me back. Yeah, meeting Gravity Falls, meeting, meeting Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I think we'd be remiss in not pointing out that it is very, very strongly influenced by Adventure Time. They're not even hiding it. I mean, the girls talk like Finn, right? They say, like, what the junk? Or, oh, my Bessie Coleman. They beat up giant three-eyed foxes who howl a message warning them about holy kittens. Yeah, but it's... They're attending a camp for hardcore lady types. Friendship to the max. Max. Ripley, the, the, the wild girl, gives CPR by dropkicking the water out of somebody. And, you know, pretty girl April arm wrestles a statue. It's very Adventure Time. Yeah, but unlike Adventure Time, this is a more grounded version. And unlike Carb Stump, here the grounding works. Because what's important and what's best about this series are the characters and their relations. Mm, to a point. Okay. My... I, I had very, very ambivalent reactions to Lumberjanes. I read it twice, because the first time I read it and I wasn't thrilled, and I felt like I should be, so I reread it again, and that's when I understood what was missing. On the one hand, there's a lot of clever anti-stereotypical writing here, in the sense that the strongest person in the Lumberjanes is April, who's this very pretty girl, this redhead, who takes a lot of pride in her appearance, but she can also knock down trees just by punching them. And, but then, for example, 
uh, uh, so these girls are the Indiana Jones of their story, right? They're yeah. these adventurers, and when they meet the Boy Scouts, the Boy Scouts are all about making tea and baking cookies. <laughs> and, you know, they like everything to be clean. So there is a lot of like working against stereotypes, but the problem that I had was looking at the girls themselves. For example, Joe. Yeah. She doesn't do anything throughout the entire story. She's like, the Mac- she's the MacGuffin of the first story. Arc. She she literally picks up something, and that is the sum total of everything that is is even revealed about her. Like I don't even know to describe to you what her personality is beyond the fact that she's April's best friend. That is li- like there's a scene in which April is mad at her, but that is all you see of Joe in eight issues. Now, everyone else has some kind of defining characteristic. Like, Ripley is this uncontrollable ball of energy. And, and Molly, uh, and Mal have this sort of, you know, interesting pseudo-lesbian undertones going on. I don't think it's an undertones. It's, it's a lesbian couple. It was a, well, yeah. they're not actually a couple well, at b- that point. Because, because there's a flirtation. We're, we're not sure about the ages of these kids also because, or are they like 14, 15? We well, don't they don't have to be, this is a boom comic. Yeah. They don't have to be explicit. But no. like, for example, there's some kind of flirtation going on over there. So that's good enough, like, for now to define that. But Joe, so like, I'm, I'm thinking if Joe were removed from the story, Nothing would actually change. Well, she's the MacGuffin of the first story arc. So, yeah, but, you know. but that also says that, like, on some level, Stevenson and Ellis didn't quite do the job of grounding these girls in terms of, in terms of their personalities. Like, the person who I felt was best defined here was Jen, of all people. The troop leader who's like constantly bringing herself to the point of passing out because she's trying to take care of these girls. There's nothing supernatural going on here. Please, there is nothing. <laughs> or like when she jumps in front of a raptor and, and Joe asks her, you know, did you have a plan? And Jen screams, I thought adrenaline would take over, but it's not. I mean, yeah. I love the dialogue here. But that's, that's, that I think is what was missing for me. They're very shallow characters. And, on the one hand, it's okay because as a group, the Lumberjanes are challenging a lot of stereotypes. I'm under no illusions that that is what Stevenson is doing, right? The fact that they are these tough, you know, and that April of all the characters is the one who doesn't mind, like, when, an, when a Greek statue challenges her to a... a, yeah. a but contest I, of strength, she breaks its arm off. Yeah, but I think it's important. It's not a tough in the annoying sense of, you know... You know, strong female protagonist. No, this is what strong yeah. female protagonists it's, actually mean. Yeah, not the cartoonish it's, version. It's they're girly. They're you yeah. know, it's probably you know they're interesting in friendship bracelets and stuff, and it's not used to diminish them. Not at all. It's not. Yeah, you you can be a badass and wear a dress. Why not? And they do. In yeah. Fact. So, but on the other hand, like I feel like I would have enjoyed this a little bit more if it had been. If, if they there had been more distinction in terms of the individual characters, because the minute you say like you can pluck Joe out of the story, and then everything else goes according to plan, it's like well then she's kind of a waste. And there are of course loose threads in these eight issues, which again, like we said, you can tell the moment that she realizes that there's going to be more, because that whole subplot with the bear woman yeah disappears. Nobody ever brings it up again, and in fact you get sort of this new threat that comes in halfway through the storyline. Yeah, and so I think that was it, meant to be the big thing. I don't know, because like when you're reading it in an individual... like as an Yeah, individual, I read it monthly. 
So I read like all eight issues mm-hmm. at once. And it's very clear that the actual antagonists of this story arc don't show up until halfway through. And up until that point, there's a lot of focus on sort of the individual mysteries that are going on and what's really the deal with the sort of matriarch of the camp and her weirdness. And she's very, she's a very bizarre character. But because, I mean, again, like going back to the, the Adventure Time comparison, you know, yes, Adventure Time is fluff. It's whimsical. There are also episodes in which, you know, it's an allegory for a little girl whose foster father is basically disappearing. Under... It's the all-family post-nuclear apocalyptic comic. But... That was, yeah. Well, on the one hand, yes, but on the other hand, I mean, did you see that episode where you find out, like, what's going on with the Ice Queen and yeah. the Ice King, King and Marceline? Yes. So, that whole uh, Alzheimer's allegory was heartbreaking. It's like, you know, she's this little girl whose foster father is disappearing in front of her eyes, and there's nothing she can do about it. And, like, they're alone in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, and he wants so much to protect her, and he can't help fading away. And it's like, it's a moment of death that comes out of nowhere, but that also works in the context of the series. That whole, like, the current season has Finn, you know, confronting his father, and everything that goes along with that and here I feel like that's what's missing. The well, sort of glimpse that something deeper. But this is... It's very early, you know, in terms it's of... Eight ad- issues. No, but in terms of Adventure Time, we're still in the first season. And you didn't get these deep things in Adventure Times up until well into the second season. You know, you have to build up all the fluff in Adventure Time in order to do the serious stuff. Yeah. Because if they just started, start right ahead with, okay, this is the Alzheimer thing, nobody would accept it. It's because Adventure Time has been so lighthearted and so fantasy-based in its yeah. first two seasons that they could do, you know, the other stuff, darker stuff. Absolutely. And but I feel like, again, if if, Lumberj- if this arc was meant to be standalone, and obviously, again, like you know, it's very clear that there was a, a U-turn at some point, but I still feel like that the fact that they became ongoing should not have prevented them from trying to do as much as possible within the constraints of the eight issues. Because the way that it currently is, they do resolve the major crisis that emerges throughout this arc. But I feel like I was waiting to find out more about Joe. I was waiting to find, like, did these girls know each other before they came to camp? Some of them... Some kind of backstory. Yeah, some of them do. Joe and April knew each other. We we Joe and April knew each other, like, that's sort of the contentious issue with their relationship. But, you know, Ripley, for example, she's a hilarious character. She's... I think she's, she's my favorite lumberjane. She's, like, this wild and crazy... But then, for example, Mal and Molly, that whole relationship... Did that start at the camp? Because when we start the series, they've already been at the camp for a while now. Yeah. Like, Jen already knows that they have these, you know, they go out, they sneak out in the middle of the night and they fight giant wolves and they do all these things and then they come back and Jen is, of course, waiting for them. And really, like, the only character who, who does make that transition is Jen in the sense that she finally acknowledges that there's still a lot of weird stuff going on. Yeah. Um. But there's no, but Jen isn't a lumberjane. Well, are you... I'm reading it in issue. Well, she is technically. I, I mean, she's yeah. She's in a position when the series starts. It's like she's in a position of authority. She's the person that they're defying in I, order to have their. Adventures. I think. I think it's stronger in terms of the single issue than the arc because, like you said, the end of the arc is almost out of nowhere, and it brings to mind the other eight issue miniseries from Boom that we've talked about. Might as flesh. Yeah, which 
which you really enjoyed, you know, the single things and all the strange adventures as they went on, and then at the end it's like, what, 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 where did this came from? But, oh, it came from there, but I don't want to read that. But here's the thing, like, the, the comparison to Midas Flesh is appropriate because, yes, there was a similar sense of whimsy there, right? The dinosaur yeah. and, and everything that was going on over there? Absolutely. However, you remember that in the Midas Flesh, you know, look at the character work that we had with Fatima and the rest of the crew, right? These characters stood out as more than just challenging stereotypes. In Fatima's case, it was the fact that she was like, you know, she was a Muslim character who was not defined by her religion. So after all of that, you know, you read eight issues, you get a very strong sense. This, the, the ending was weird. We talked about it at the time. But on the other hand, we can say that those three characters were defined much more clearly in eight issues than, you know, these five girls who, other than the fact that they each represent sort of a challenge of what a typical Girl Scout would be, I don't know that that's enough. Like, would I come back for more? I'm already there for more. So, so okay, you've read forward to... Is this addressed at some point? Like, are, is there more character work? Yeah, uh, the last two issues have been about the relationship between Maul and Molly. Okay. It became the focus of these issues. They, so that they might go. be, like, if that was something that Stevenson and Ellis deferred to keep the momentum of the ongoing, then maybe that would be enough for me to come back for a second arc. If, like, if I know that it's coming at some point, I can wait. Ah. Because again, like, it's a fun comic to read, but I feel like it's very shallow. I don't think it's shallow. I think, how, how shall I put it? It's not, it's not trying to address in words what it does in simply existing and being what it is. It doesn't have to shout, here's a left man relationship. It just has to show these no, girls. No, yeah. No, it doesn't have to shout it at all. It's the fact that it's there. Yeah. Is all you need. Yes. And again, like, uh, using, going back to Ripley again, just because she, she really does stand out. Or, you know what? Let's forget Ripley. Going back to Jen. Right, the fact that Jen does undergo this shift, that at the beginning she is very much the authoritarian figure, and then she manages to sort of get with the program when she's almost eaten by crazed Boy Scouts. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds absurd when you describe it, but that's what happens. So you do have these characters sort of move from one point to the other, but I feel like they're in the minority. And now, if you're saying that like going forward in the second arc, that's not the case anymore. Then I feel like that would, I would be more inclined to come back for more. If it stays at this level, mm-hmm. it's not enough for me. Because I feel like, again, Joe being the most obvious criticism, like, I feel like if I could make it to the end of the arc and say, you know, I don't know, like, I can't say that I care about Joe. Because I don't know anything about her. I so. think, I think there's enough in, in Joe at least, and that she's very desperate for love. And she's. How do you, how do you get to that conclusion though? Is it like her friendship with April? But April is a similar problem. Like the fact that she is the strong, pretty girl. Other than that, and other than her friendship with Joe, in eight issues, what else is there? Like I feel like there might have, there's a balancing act here between the bizarre events that happen like in this area, and really like a lot of weird things that happen in this yeah. book. Dinosaurs. But I feel like they're... It's not a boom book without a dinosaur. You have to have you have to have dinosaurs, and you have to have somebody riding a dinosaur. That has to also be sort of the, the colorway to that. But 
I feel like they may have gone too far towards having all of these bizarre events and not giving me... I mean, it wasn't until issue four or five that I could distinguish between Ripley and Mal. Seriously? Yeah, because her flirtation with Molly only happens like when they're heading for, towards the cave. And before that, it's like, so Ripley... Okay, so when Ripley jumps into the waterfall, and because like their hair is sort of similar, like Maul shaves the side of her head. Yeah, but Ripley's like the tiny, skinny thing. Yeah, but al- well, also it's because you can't you can't fold the series for the you know the characters not looking alike. They're no, all very different they're designs. Very, they're very different designs, but in terms of personality, I couldn't tell the difference between like because they're both tough. But it, it, again, like it, the distinction becomes much clearer going forward, but. I, I wish I wish that there had been more character work here. Okay, what about the art? The, the art's stunning. Yeah, and again, it's very simple, but it's the kind of simple that works for the story. There, are, you know, throughout the issues, there are some panels that don't work for me, where the cartooning becomes a bit too much, and you know, short characters become like tiny midget people for yeah. some reason. <laughs> well, it's it's the yeah. you know, it's a simplistic aesthetic that very much works in its favor. Yeah, and uh, if you read the collection, in the collection, do you get all the edit admins for the for each issue, the song choices and the badges? No. Oh, well, shit, I really like it because every issue in the collect in the, you know, regular series, it ends with a song list, you know, your mm-hmm. soundtrack for the issue and a collection of badges, you know, right. like the badges picked for this issue are this and that and this. Which gives, you know, the feeling of something extra and gives you more feeling of the kind of the world they want you to do. Right. I, I really like the idea in general of, you know, comics that come with their own song list. Yeah. You know, mixtape comics. And there aren't a lot of comics that are doing it right now. Uh, Transformers more than meets the eye does it. And I think Casanova did it at the time. Well, Casanova has... No, or maybe just Matt Fraction publishing on his blog, you know, this is what you should listen right. to while reading oh, my oh, stuff. Oh, didn't, uh, didn't Gillen do that on Young Avengers? Well, yeah, well, G- Gillen would do it. Gillen would do that, yeah. Yeah. Um, are you, like, so you're still going on, I don't know it has it, back. Yeah, it has its problems. I liked it. Yeah. I'm not saying that I didn't, but... No, 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 I recognize it's it's a problematic comic in terms of plot construction and some of the wonky character work, but it's so joyous in and of yeah. itself. And whenever I get a new issue, I'm just, oh, I'm lighting up. It's, it's yeah. fun. It's fun. It's, it absolutely is fun. It's not, it's not as deep as it could be, and it's not as well-constructed as it should be, mm-hmm. and I believe it will be, but it's fun. So. I, I think that... And you, I can, would... and you can see Brooke Ellen improving, you know, issue by issue, because she starts yes. off great, but a bit scratchy. And it gets smoother and more likable. And by the time you reach issue 10 or 11, it's like, that's lovely stuff. I, I mean, thinking about it now, I, what I might do is maybe wait for the second arc to conclude and then see what people are saying about it. Because I feel like I should like this book. Because it is fun. And it is whimsical. And it is enjoyable in very similar ways to The Midas Flesh. To the work of Ryan North, both in like Adventure Time and in Squirrel Girl, and you know it is very similar to the series Adventure Time, also Pendleton Ward's work, and I feel like it's almost there, but not quite, and I, I I, I want to like it, but I can't recommend it because because what I'm looking for isn't there. It might get there at some point, 
Mm. But, like, right now, I get to the end and it's like, yes, there are characters that I very much enjoyed, but there were also things that, because so much space is wasted on that. I mean, again, it comes down to an issue of, like, using the space that you have cleverly. The Bear Woman storyline doesn't even get a mention after I think issue three or four, it just stops halfway through, and then no, she's in issue five with dinosaurs. Right. So issue five, but then you know, like there's a whole subplot going on over there, which that's what starts the story. Like they are in the very mm. beginning of, of issue number one, they are out in the woods looking for the bear woman. She's coming back later. So if that's what worries you, okay. the plot is picked up. Right. No, I'm just saying, like within the framework of these eight issues, if you read it as a collected edition, it's going to look schizophrenic because. Diane, and who she ultimately turns out to be, literally does not appear in the book until her Until they need her to start, yeah. Yeah, so... And it's the kind of thing that you needed to see through earlier. Yeah. Like, a little more foreshadowing would have helped, a little more foregrounding with the characters. Um, if these things come into play later, I might reconsider. Right now, for all that it's fun, for all that it's enjoyable, it's it's a tough sell for me. Well, I'm already there, so you don't have to sell it to me. Okay. Okay, that's it for this episode. Until next time, I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Bon appetit.